everyone, and welcome to episode 64 of the Hydrogen Nowcast for October 28th, 2022. The Hydrogen Nowcast is sponsored by New Day Hydrogen, who's helping fleet owners meet their zero emission vehicle needs. If you're with a fleet or transit operator, and your fleet is wondering how to convert to zero emission vehicles but still meet your operational needs, New Day Hydrogen can give you the option of fuel cell vehicles by providing public hydrogen fuel stations near you and showing you the available fuel cell trucks, vans, and buses. To find out more information about both vehicles and fueling, visit the NewDayHydrogen.com website, where you can also submit requests on the contact page. Well, on the podcast today, we're going to talk about using geothermal energy, and specifically electricity made from geothermal energy. That is, instead of electricity from wind or solar or hydroelectric, to make hydrogen by electrolysis. Now, if you're like me, you may have thought that obtaining geothermal energy requires finding geothermal hot water. But as most of us know, the core of the Earth is really hot. I mean, really hot, around the same temperature as the surface of the sun. I actually looked that up. And as you drill down from the surface, the rocks get hotter and hotter. And as it turns out, in many places in the US and Europe and elsewhere, you can find all the heat you need to run a turbine at practical depths. So to talk about this today, we have William Carpenter, who's the founder and CEO of the company H2 Synergy. And H2 Synergy, by combining enhanced geothermal power generation with industrial-scale electrolysis, seeks to become the lowest-cost producer of a molecule that's critical to the energy transition, green hydrogen. So, William, welcome to the show. Thanks, Brian. I'm glad to be here with you today, and thank you for inviting me. Well, so glad you're taking the time to be with us today, William. So, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background that led you to start H2 Synergy? Yeah, sure. Prior to H2 Synergy, I was the CEO of Hytrolium, a company developing a roughly $5 billion commercial-scale synthetic fuels plant on the U.S. Gulf Coast until destabilization in Ukraine disrupted the global energy markets. And so I shifted to green hydrogen because hydrogen production is a major part of synthetic fuels refining. Before Hytrolium, I gained most of my energy project development experience as a co-founder and senior VP of corporate development for Energy Security Partners, uh, another gas to liquids company in Arkansas developing a similarly sized synthetic fuels plant. Wow, well, that's an impressive background, William. Well, thanks. You know, I think the world now recognizes that hydrogen is a pretty critical component to replace fossil fuels with low greenhouse gas energy. So what are your thoughts on the macroeconomic picture for clean hydrogen? Well, I think the macroeconomic picture for hydrogen overall, overall is great. It's projected to grow many, many percentage points, CAGR, year on, year out. But it's really how do we get there? Much of the new hydrogen capacity coming online originates from natural gas through a process called steam methane reforming. And this is a process that's been around for years and years. Uh, making it clean hydrogen or blue hydrogen requires capturing stack emissions by using carbon capture equipment, then injecting the CO2 into any number of underground formations called injection wells. The equipment to capture is very expensive. There's not that much permitting guidance for what's called 45Q injection wells. And the reality is that natural gas as a fuel cost make that proposition comparatively uneconomical given what H2 Synergy can do at this point using enhanced geothermal to green hydrogen. Well, you know, you mentioned 45Q, and for listeners not familiar with that, that's a U.S. tax credit for carbon sequestration. So, William, from your understanding, how much of the announced new hydrogen capacity was to come from blue hydrogen systems? 
Yeah, I needed to look that up to be more specific, but according to the recent Hydrogen Council report that came out, I think, in September, and I'm quoting directly, in 2022, some 680 large-scale hydrogen project proposals, equivalent to about uh, $240 billion U.S. dollars in direct investment through 2030, have been put forward. This is an increase in investment of 50% since November of 2021. Yet only about 10% or $22 billion have reached something called FID or final investment decision. Of those, it's saying about 60% of those projects are coming in as blue hydrogen and the remaining are looking at green hydrogen from renewable power into electrolysis. And so if you look at what this report says, it's actually very revealing and, and somewhat interesting that 90% of the announced clean and green hydrogen projects are not likely to reach FID despite being funded for early development. And so unless a project is self-funded by the sponsor, like an oil major or a chemical company, ammonia company, project developers require demand visibility in the form of long-term hydrogen offtake agreements. These are not agreements that are that conventional or the norm quite yet. And we've got to have the demand side to drive the building of these massive projects. And so the primary reasons that blue hydrogen projects are unlikely to achieve you know, FID anytime soon is because the high capital cost of all of the additional carbon capture equipment, the injection wells, and then just the prices of natural gas. So I think the interesting angle is also how many green hydrogen projects are unlikely to happen despite using abundant conventional renewable energy from solar and wind. And there are a handful I think in Norway and uh, in the Pacific Northwest that are going to look at hydropower, hydroelectric. Here's the thing. Most industrial scale hydrogen production systems are located on site or adjacent to the major end users like refineries, ammonia plants, or with another large scale chemical plants. The problem is I see it with wind and solar as a power feed into electrolysis to make green hydrogen is they don't make electricity all the time. They're called intermittent resources. So they'll require grid power to supplement or just shut down during periods of intermittency. And so while wind and solar do generate low-cost electrons, the ultimate realized price per kilowatt hour will always need to be closer to 7 to 10 cents because the grid price reflects the price of all power generators within a given system. And so since natural gas accounts for most of the base load generation capacity, meaning it operates all the time if needed in nearly any power market worldwide, with gas prices trading forward at $6 in the States and closer to 12 to 20 in places like Europe, the UK and Japan, the lowest grid price mixed with renewables someone can achieve to make green hydrogen is somewhere between 12 and maybe 20 cents per kilowatt hour. Getting the price per kilogram of hydrogen down where it competes with oil and gas on an equivalency basis is going to require heavy subsidies as many governments or nations are promoting but we can actually get the kilowatt hour cost much lower right now by using enhanced geothermal as the power feed into electrolysis. Interesting analysis. All right. Well, obviously, geothermal energy is continuous, you know, unlike wind and solar. So that's going to drive the price of hydrogen down, right? Yes, that's going to drive hydrogen prices down substantially. Because if you look at the levelized cost of hydrogen, as most analyses have it, you're looking at basically duty cycles of 50% or less just because wind and solar isn't constant. At a 90% online time, then we can get the price down very cheap. So H2 Synergy has secured rights to develop and operate enhanced geothermal power plants within the Power to X pathway worldwide. 
The technology provider recently delivered their field test for their subsurface well technology over four months of continuous operation, basically proving it out. Uh, with the depths and flow rates achieved within a closed loop system, we can locate virtually anywhere since we don't use conventional volcanic formations with steam. Like most of the geothermal plants that you see in, in Iceland or in California, even in some in Japan, but we're looking at hot, dry, sedimentary rock. And so this gives us our locational flexibility, gives us a distinct advantage over wind, solar, nuclear, hydroelectric. And of course, since we're zero carbon and potentially carbon negative, uh, we have a distinct advantage over hydrocarbon-based power generation systems. Well, I think that ability to locate practically anywhere probably comes as a surprise to a lot of people, as it did to me. So why don't you give us an idea of the mechanics of how this kind of a system would work? Yeah, sure. So the process is simple in theory. We're drilling a pretty deep hole down to reach sufficient heat resources. And imagine using known technical methods from the oil and gas industry to basically create a, a giant teapot underground. And we're going to be using the Earth's natural heat to pressurize a working fluid, which circulates then within a perpetual loop. We use a heat exchanger to then transfer the heat into another loop that spins the turbine. This proprietary process was recently proven out in extensive field tests by reworking an existing natural gas well in Texas and creating a subsurface reservoir at depths that have the heat resources to push a working fluid, heavy water, up the production well, which is located within the same single well casing, which runs through a heat exchanger. This heat exchanger powers another loop that uses supercritical CO2 as the working fluid, and that spins the turbine. And so this turbine technology we're using comes from concentrated solar. And it's actually had over $120 million of Department of Energy funding already behind it. And it's got two to three times more efficiency when converting heat to electricity than the conventional steam generators found in the, the types of, of geothermal plants that you see in Iceland. And so in terms of our numbers, each well can produce about three megawatts of power. And these turbines are designed to be modular to create redundancy within the same power plant. And so on one well pad about the size of an acre, we can generate let's say roughly 50 megawatts of baseload capacity, which is, is pretty amazing in terms of density of generation per acre of land. We have a much higher density of generation capacity per acre than wind and solar could ever achieve. And so the other difference is that geothermal energy is zero carbon and we can operate at baseload capacity. And let's just say that right now we have a target LCOE or levelized cost of energy at about six to eight cents per kilowatt hour. And that depends primarily on the subsurface depths needed to reach sufficient heat resources to power the system. In, in some locations, it could be 10 to 15,000 feet down. In others, in places like Japan or along the Ring of Fire, it could be two to 4,000 feet, lowering our CapEx costs. And so that LCOE is the buildup of all costs, which is OPEX and CapEx capitalized over the contract period. And this includes the repayment of debt and providing some nominal return to equity of investors of probably a utility return of 8%. Wow, that's pretty incredible. I mean, this really seems like it has enormous advantages for making green hydrogen. I mean, it'd be the lowest cost, it's zero carbon, large capacity, small footprint, and since geothermal wells can be located almost anywhere, that there's at least a little bit of land, we don't really need transmission lines or pipelines. So, you know, one thing I can see is that this could be really useful for um, battery vehicle charging stations or hydrogen fueling stations in small towns or along highways and remote locations where it's tough to get power lines out there. Now, what are some of the other end use scenarios for this? 
Yeah, well, you know, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, when you talk about additional ancillary infrastructure like transmission lines or new pipelines to support the emerging clean hydrogen economy, these infrastructure costs are not always factored into the final or the delivered price per unit of hydrogen. And that's one thing that I think a lot of governments and some big corporates have to really look at is how much money additional capital needs to be spent actually building out the, the, the bulk grid or the transmission grid for hydrogen. For our end-use scenarios, we are actively working to develop geothermal power to green hydrogen projects within existing announced projects and development worldwide. And this includes direct air CO2 capture with green hydrogen to make synthetic fuels, which I know a fair amount about having built synthetic fuels plants, replacing gray hydrogen within chemical plants and refineries now that we can produce cheaper than natural gas-based hydrogen, fuel cell refueling stations, and naturally sliding into any number of global projects that we're planning to operate as blue hydrogen with carbon capture. We can locate on-site, operate 24-7, and have a very small footprint to make the same volume of hydrogen at much, much lower prices. And so the one question I think that most of our listeners are going to ask is, we've never heard of this before being ready for the, for the market, enhanced geothermal being ready to go be commercialized. What really sets this apart is we have finished field testing and we had a global EPC on-site. And as the developer of these projects, they have expressed a willingness in writing to provide full construction wraps. And that includes construction, completion, and capacity guarantees. That basically means they're going to put their balance sheet behind projects so lenders or equity investors have zero technology risk. This opens up the door for non-recourse project financing within the context of having a long-term hydrogen purchase contract with creditworthy buyers. And I think right now that's kind of the linchpin. And so that's where H2 Synergy is really focusing in on is I don't really need much more technology validation at this point. I'm looking at long-term PPAs or long-term hydrogen purchase agreements within the power to X pathway. And we can be extremely, extremely competitive, especially compared to places in Europe or Japan where their green hydrogen strike price is closer to 12 cents per kilowatt hour. We can definitely do better than that. Wow. Thanks, William. Well, you know, I think the listeners may be wondering about the potential for geothermal in, in different places. And I know that NREL publishes a number of geothermal maps. So if listeners want to look at the geothermal potential in the United States, as well as Europe, uh, if you just do a web search for geothermal map of US or geothermal map of Europe, those will come up. So William, I know you're up in Boulder. I'm, I'm in the Denver area. We, you know, we got together for lunch this past weekend. Why don't we talk about Colorado a little bit? Why don't you give us some idea of the depth here in the state of Colorado where we'd have to go to have adequate heat for geothermal? Sure. So right now in Colorado, they're looking at both. And this is the governor's heat beneath our feet initiative for which we are participating in. In Colorado, we can hit subsurface temperatures in many places, even here on the plains and the front range, between five and 8,000 feet. Uh, that's uh, around 1,500 to 2,400 meters. Our base case scenarios, which are in, in Texas, are closer to 15,000 feet or 4,600 meters to reach what we need in terms of adequate heat resources. So in Colorado, we can probably reduce our capex because at shallower depths, that's kind of how we measure. It's how long on the well pad is needed to reach our heat resources. That's going to reduce our LCOE to be highly competitive with wind and solar and will be baseload and will be dispatchable. And I've already got an option in Colorado for up to 10,000 acres 
directly adjacent to two of the largest bulk transmission lines in Colorado, which feed the Aurora substation, which essentially feeds Denver. It powers Denver. Well, as long as we're talking about Colorado, you know, William, as you know, the uh, Colorado Hydrogen Network has stakeholders who hope to be part of the Western Interstates Hydrogen Hub, or WISH, as it's uh, the acronym is pronounced. Now, many of those companies are likely planning to use wind and solar for large-scale green hydrogen production. You know, how would H2 Synergy play into that? Sure. So this is actually very exciting. And I'm talking to several other potential hydrogen hubs looking at the RFP, uh, the $8 billion in funding from the government. Corpus Christi, Houston, maybe something in the Midwest that's going to come up on our radar pretty soon. But as we discussed, the all-in delivered price per kilowatt hour of grid power from a utility or operator, even if using a large percentage of wind and solar, is going to be closer to seven to eight cents per kilowatt hour because natural gas factors heavily into the mix, plus some battery storage. And then, of course, the conventional renewables, which is going to be even more expensive to build out that capacity because you don't just build a new one gigawatt solar or wind plant. You have to build all the ancillary infrastructure and transmission lines and substations that play into your all-in cost per kilowatt. And so, Let's just say, for example, in Colorado, if I can get subsurface temp at five to 8,000 feet and I can generate and get an LCOE at, say, four to five cents per kilowatt hour on site at nearly any capacity needed by using emerging industrial scale electrolyzers at 100 megawatts or greater capacity, we can make green hydrogen at around two to three dollars per kilogram. And that's a levelized cost. And that covers my entire cost plate basis, plus returning capital to equity investors. Now, after we apply the production tax credit uh, within the Inflation Reduction Act, that implies that a geothermal hydrogen plant can make money with an all-in cost per kilogram of about zero. So if I can sell it to, there's a reasonable profit, and a system like this in Colorado could make our state the nation's leading hydrogen hub because our costs of supply are going to be the lowest in the nation. As we said earlier, we can be located almost anywhere. That's going to reduce the pipeline, storage, and other infrastructure costs. So if we have an industrial end user, we can locate across the street, or if they've got a few extra acres of land, we can locate on site. Having a guaranteed daily supply is going to attract the demand for this molecule. First, from the existing industrial end users in Colorado, like the refineries or the cement makers, then supplying hydrogen to trucking fleets and vehicles, because we're going to have a very, very low fuel cost. And so look, if if bulk interstate hydrogen transmission lines do get built, which may be unnecessary since zero carbon hydrogen can now be made on site or adjacent to end users. Colorado could even become a net exporter of a molecule that many expect to replace natural gas. And that's going to supplement the revenue. So what overall impact for Colorado would a geothermal electrical generation system and a power to green hydrogen system have? Right. So we have to talk about scale and we have to talk about grid integration and we've got to talk about the utilities. And I think we're going to have to talk about a fundamental shift in how the grid in Colorado receives and transmits electricity. So the ideal scenario is not to just build out 100 to 200 megawatts of a new way to make electricity that's baseload, that can be distributed, that's zero carbon, but we're looking to build out, say, up to a four gigawatt fleet of new geothermal power generation assets for Colorado's power grid. We can locate scaled facilities adjacent to any number of existing 138 kV substations, and that's going to reduce the utilities interconnection and transmission costs. And that should reduce the ratepayers and how much we're paying for power. So with some of that capacity, 
I would propose it becomes dedicated to the production of green hydrogen at strategic locations adjacent to existing industrial end users or at hubs where planned pipelines and compression stations are going to be coming online. We could overbuild some of that capacity specific to making hydrogen at the lowest prices in the nation after applying the production tax credit. But since we're in a regulated market, we're just going to have to sit down and have a very frank discussion with our utility about what blend of power could be used for hydrogen and what price could be achieved. Because what the utility is going to look for is if we give you a PPA at X dollars or X cents per kilowatt hour, and I'm going to go to my EPC who says, okay, well, let's put together the development package, the, the pre-feed and the feed, and feed means front end engineering and design. And then I'm going to go to my lenders and equity and say, this is a PPA backed project. I have an EPC willing to guarantee this project and deliver the capacity at this price. And then we'll put some metal on the ground and make it happen. But that discussion with the utility is going to be critical, and we should be talking with them in the next several weeks, actually. Interesting. Well, how fast do you think you could scale? That's a great question. And I think that's the question that's going to be remaining is how fast can we bring capacity online? So we're going to be using off-the-shelf equipment initially and technical labor from the oil and gas industry to deliver these wells. We can bring about 20 wells, which translates into about 50 megawatts of new capacity in about 60 days using advanced drilling techniques. And a lot of these locations that we can generate on have been pre-permitted for oil and gas activities. Now, we're not fracking. We're not using chemicals. We're just using some known techniques to dig a big hole in the ground, use a working fluid, and use the Earth's natural heat and pressure to spin a turbine in a new way. So with that new capacity and the green hydrogen production, since our hydrogen will be the lowest cost in the nation, fleets and consumers may be persuaded to convert over to fuel cells. If you want to clean the air on the front range, we've got to decarbonize and clean up the stack emissions from the big oil refinery. We've got to replace all natural gas-fired power plants with renewables like geothermal, replace all coal with geothermal, and find ways to incentivize trucking fleet operators and consumers to continue converting to electric vehicles and fuel cell vehicles with ample supply of both electricity and hydrogen fuel at a very, very low cost compared to gasoline, natural gas, or diesel fuel. Well, this is all very interesting. And uh, I think I'm going to encourage listeners to listen to this podcast two or three times because uh, we've gone over so much. I think it's going to take that to to pick it up. I, I certainly feel that way myself. Well, listeners, I've been talking with William Carpenter, who's the founder and CEO of the company H2 Synergy, whose website is h2synergy.com, just all one word, h2synergy.com. But William, if listeners want to reach out and contact you, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, thank you, Brian. Uh, The best way to reach me would be over email, and that is wmc at h2synergy.com. And that's just H, the number two, S-Y-N-E-R-G-Y dot com, all one word. Okay. Well, thanks, William, again, for your time to be with us today. And I'll, I'll put those things in the show notes. I sincerely hope we start to see some geothermal generators for, well, both electricity and hydrogen, you know, coming online very soon. Listeners, if you enjoyed listening to the Hydrogen Nowcast, consider subscribing to the podcast and also give us a rating in your podcast app. A good rating helps us be discovered by other people. And of course, word of mouth recommendations are really important. So consider letting people in your own network know about the Hydrogen Nowcast. So once again, I'd like to thank New Day Hydrogen for sponsoring the Hydrogen Nowcast. New Day Hydrogen is working to build out and deploy hydrogen infrastructure to enable any of us to convert to zero emission vehicles. And lastly, if you'd like to contact me, I'm always game to hear from you. So you can reach me through the website at colorado-hydrogen.org or on LinkedIn. 
So until next time, this is Brian DeBruin wishing you health and prosperity. Goodbye.